Hello and welcome to the Three Worlds podcast number 22. You're going to take part in an experiment. You're all guinea pigs. Squeak, squeak. I've just bought some new software for my Apple Mac, which is a specialist text-to-speech software. And I want to test it on you because we're kind of having some thoughts about the possibility of creating articles as sound files so that people can download them from iTunes. So what I've done is I have converted an article that appeared in a back issue of Sacred Hoop about travelling to Tuva in southern Siberia uh, to take part in a rainmaking ceremony. And I'd like you to listen to it, and I hope you enjoy it. It lasts about half an hour. And um, what I'd like you to do is email me and give me some real good feedback about it. Did the voice, the computer-generated voice, because it's not a real person, it's a computer-generated voice called Lucy. So Lucy is going to talk to you for about half an hour, and I want you to let me know what you think of her, whether she was easy to understand, whether if you were listening to such things on an iPod, you'd get so exasperated you'd throw your iPod out of the car window or the house window or anywhere, really. (laughs) Flush it down the toilet. I don't care. Anyway, just can you let me know? Nick at sacredhoop.org. This isn't a real podcast and I have no plans to do podcasts like this, you know, very often, if ever at all. But uh, it's just a test. Give it a listen. Let me know what you think. Nick at sacredhoop.org. Thanks. And I'll hand you across to Lucy. Bringing the reins to Tuva. Bill Pfeiffer. Tuva is a republic of Russia, just north of Mongolia, embraced by the Altaisian mountain range in the north and the Tanuoli mountains in the south. Bill Pfeiffer, founder of Sacred Earth Network, organized a shamanic expedition to Tuva together with Lynn Roberts of the non-profit Dream Change. With them were 13 fellow travelers from the U.S., Russia, Costa Rica, and England, who laid their fears aside for this journey into the land of the eagles, a land where at present the Tega forest was ablaze. Their mission was to bring rain to quench the fires. He tells what happened. The Tega was on fire when we arrived in Tuva's capital city Kiesiel, in June of 2002. A million or more acres were ablaze in Siberia, and Tuva was at the center. I wondered about the health effects of breathing air so laden with smoke, but fortunately, a steady wind started to blow, and for a few days it became surprisingly clear. Still, huge plumes continued to rise from the surrounding mountains, joining their cumulus cousins in the wide Siberian sky. Our hosts for the week were Harold, Ida, and Natasha, all in their thirties and each gifted in shamanic ceremony and healing. Their power and insight has come through dreams, from close contact with the land, and by training with the remarkable shaman, Iturek, Muenhart. Harold, Ida, and Natasha were given permission to guide us southwards by the elder shaman, Mangushkinainlopsan, who has spent much of his adult life collecting and preserving the oral histories and shamanic folklore of his people. 
he is considered to be the gateway to Tuva. Both Kinai Lopsan and Ichurek believe it to be imperative that their fellow Tuvans, many of whom are battling alcoholism, purposelessness and despair, understand that there is great value in traditional Tuvan culture and spirituality, and they are willing to share this with foreigners like us as well. And for ourselves, still feeling jet-lagged, we were set to work to exchange our Western rationalism for the knowledge that by using the power of consciousness alone, the observer affects the observed. Specifically, we were asked to make rain for this drought-stricken land. Soon after our arrival we visited the Toastier, Nine Heavens, clinic on the shores of the majestic Unizi River. In one of the yurts in front of the main building we listened to throat singers and then prayed together. Ornately carved and painted wooden cabinets stood along one wall, ribbons, scarves and animal fur hung from the ceiling. Suddenly, a strong wind was flapping the side of the yurt which was followed by an hour-long deluge that poured down on the thirsty landscape. Coming out into the windy and rain, we were amazed at the quick results. The shamans were reservedly happy, but then big, ecstatic smiles appeared as a huge double rainbow spanned the vast sky, arching over the distant mountains. What an auspicious way to start! In the power of that moment, instead of feeling the pain of living in an unsustainable world which had plagued me for weeks, I felt that something remarkable was being born on planet Earth. I saw millions of people seeking for, and creating, an existence more harmonious and magnificent than anything previously manifested. The journey south. The next day we headed southward into what could be described as the badlands of Tuva, towards its border with Mongolia. We were joined by Milanki Nayar, an ecologist who recently had visited the States during a SEN-sponsored meeting of Native American and Native Siberian leaders. Milan had spent a great deal of time organizing the part of our excursion outside of Kiesiel. Our first stop was at an ovu that Ichurek had reconstructed several years earlier. At this first of many ovus we would visit, a small fire was built in Harrell, Ida and Natasha dressed themselves in stunningly beautiful shaman's costumes. They asked us all to sit around the fire and start praying for rain. A bundle of dried juniper, artish, was lit and passed around to clear energetic impurities, exactly the way sages used by Native Americans. The three shamans fed the fire extensively with vodka, bread, milk, rice, tobacco, and the breastbone of a lamb. Feeding the fire with such things is common practice to ensure that the spirits are content and will listen to one's prayers. And so we prayed for rain, and clouds gathered, and again some rain fell. Before leaving, we tied prayer flags, charlamas, to the ovu, another ritual of the Tuvan shamanic tradition that we often use to conclude our prayers. We continued southwards through a landscape that became more like desert. Our road growing bumpier and dustier, coursed among ancient stone circles and burial mounds. In the evening we passed through the small town of Maren, relieved that we soon would reach our furthest destination, where we expected to set up camp for a few days. We arrived two hours later to a remarkable site, about thirty villagers from Maren had set up camp for us in a clearing. There were four yurts, a kitchen, and a dining room tent. The pristine mountain river Elzine was flowing to our right, 
alleviating any concern about the fires that still raged in the surrounding taiga. They welcomed us with a meal and entertainment befitting the most regal of guests. Wearing traditional Tuvan dress, they serenaded us with traditional and not-so-traditional songs and dances set against a backdrop of darkening trees, as the sun finally began to set. Such an introduction to the rural Tuvan people touched our hearts with a warmth, innocence, and graciousness we will never forget. Expect the unpredictable. This place would serve as our base camp for the next four days. The idea was to relax here, get to know the shamans, practice some healing techniques, dunk in the river. But the best laid plans are often made into mincemeat by shamans the world over and the Tuvan shamans were no exception. Unpredictability, embracing unexpected adversity, even sudden volatility, is much more their character. I believe this serves as a teaching about life which engenders strength. Life is not a comfortable line of planned events or leading to paradise, but is full of unexpected ups and downs. The next days were a reflection of this principle. After breakfast we were immediately back in our three vans, headed for a sacred spring we thought was only a few kilometers away. After an hour and a half of driving we arrived, in the blazing sun, at the base of a Kyiraikon, place of the sacred white bear, the holiest site in the Erzin region of Tuva. We got out and Harold pointed to a small steep hill that the men, exactly half our group, would climb to perform a Kumlanine ceremony. The ovu on top was barely visible but we made our way for it. I was not sure what the women would do, but they did not follow. I appreciated the seemingly spontaneous opportunity to experience the unique energy of being among men only. At the top we smudged with juniper and proceeded to pray for rain and for the health of our families, communities and the world at large. I knelt, burying my face in the stony sand. Harold chanted and drummed, working up to a feverish pitch. It was simultaneously powerful, sorrowful and anguished, a plaintive invitation that called to our spirits and drew them out. Perhaps half an hour went by, and I became aware of the women singing from down below. Then all sense of time faded away as I joined even more strongly in the men's prayer. I don't know how long we chanted to the power of Harold's drumming, but I was suddenly snapped out of my trance by the stroke of a whip across my back. In another context I would have been startled or frightened, but it seemed a natural part of the process, which it was. Harold administered this one stroke, modest lashing to each of the men. He then passed out prayer flags and asked us to fasten our prayers to the pearls of the ovu. Heartfelt words. It was then that Harold gave his only speech of the entire trip. He spoke passionately in Tuvan masterfully translated by an exceptionally talented young American, Stefan Kimola. Stefan had learned to speak Tuvan fluently during the ten months he had been living in Tuva. He now conveyed Harold's words with depth and passion. They spoke of what it means to be a man, the responsibility to care for the land, to protect and provide, and to take care of the spiritual health of the family. These were responsibilities to be fulfilled not just for the benefit of their own family, but for everyone's. Harold talked about the fires caused by poachers, who always were male, as being a distortion of masculinity. 
and he wept fiercely at the destruction of his homeland, asking rhetorically how the animals were supposed to live in medicinal plants gathered when the land is scorched. When Harold cried, Stefan cried, and when Stefan cried we cried, empathy and compassion united us and dissolved any cultural differences. We made a last offering of tobacco to the spirits of that ovu, then walked backwards downhill, watching it quickly disappear. Reuniting with the women sparked an unexpected discussion. Blink confided to me that the women were feeling a little disgruntled at being excluded from the ceremony at the Ovu, and the women shamans, Natasha and Aida, seemed to agree. We men had experienced an extraordinary bonding that would have been different in a dual gender setting, but at the cost of exclusion. A discussion about sexism ensued and cleared much of the issue between us. It was then that we encountered the Arzen a sacred spring that was our destination. We had a short walk to reach it, taking a path that led among boulders dotted with green iridescent lichen. When we reached the Arzen, a steep, almost vertical slope dropped away to one side. It was covered with a mixture of plants and rocks. On the other side a more gradual slope cost away towards a mountain whose north forested face was being devoured by the fires. We began another ceremony inviting rain and asking the spirits, including the spirit of fire, to protect this place. An initial blessing was made and various foods were placed near the Arzim. Then the shamans began to drum. Those of us who had drums and rattles joined in, others improvised by putting gravel into empty water bottles. Our steady rhythm of chanting and percussion went on for hours, and I felt a palpable energy radiating from the land. Once again, clouds formed in a sky that had been absolutely clear when we arrived, and a few raindrops fell, as if letting us know that our efforts counted. Finally we headed back to the vans for an incredibly bumpy ride back to the campground. Milan spoke about the very sacred place we had just visited. Traditionally, an annual ceremony is performed here, whereby the local people thank the white bear spirit and the other spirits of the land for giving the tribe the possibility to live in happiness and to increase their wealth. This is how power and faith are restored. Prayers and Hospitality The exceptional warmth and hospitality of our Tuvan hosts greeted us as we arrived home at the campground. After dinner, Harold rounded up everyone, hosts, villagers, and guests, about fifty in all. In the near darkness, we formed a circle in a clearing among large trees. He, Natasha and Aida, put on their shaman costumes and came into the center of the circle. We were told to pray for rain as they drummed and danced. Every so often they would stop and explain how serious the drought and the fires were, and insisted that what we were doing mattered. Harold screamed out the word, Chas over and over, and asked us to join him. The sky soon darkened and a wind tossed the branches. Again, just a few drops of rain fell, but Harold reminded us to be patient, because what we're doing was having a cumulative effect. As we went off to our sleeping bags for the night, the smoke was so heavy in the air I wondered if we'd wake up in the morning. The next day was a blur of traveling and ceremony. The shamans felt we should visit two other communities toward the north about halfway back to Kizil. Exhaustion was setting in, but none of us would have wanted to miss out on our next experiences at the villages of Badag and Akrik. Powerful Communities 
but DAG has seen continual human habitation for thousands of years. A huge mound, set off like a park in the northern part of the village, has layers of ruins piled one on top of another, marking different civilizations that have influenced these easy-going, pastoral people. It is also the birthplace of Iturek, Moonheart, and her sister Ida. But Dag has it all, mountains, rivers, forests, steppe and an abundance of wildlife. We were there to thank the ancestral spirits and as usual, pray for rain. Now we were joined by several villagers as we began our trek up the mound. As their numbers increased the mood became more ritualized, and the intensity of our concentration on the ceremony at hand, magnified. About thirty of us were circled, kneeling around a huge ovu. Harold worked to light some juniper but it was too fresh. I had brought a stick of my own from Navajo land, Arizona, and was honored to offer it. It was so dry that it practically exploded when flame was put to it, and its smoke purified the entire site. Our ceremony included the tying of charlamas, prayer flags by everyone there, together creating the largest visual symbol yet of our reverence to nature and spirit. Then we took to the vans again and rumbled across the dusty terrain for a short hour to a creek, Harold's birthplace. A creek is in many ways the opposite of Badag, located in the middle of desert dependent on a single pipe for its water supply, and wrapped in a kind of desolation that reminded me of many poor towns in the southwest U.S., without the gas stations. We went to one house among dozens that were all aligned in a row on the parched land. It was Harold's aunt's house, who graciously undertook the task of feeding us on the spot. She offered bread and candied plant to tide us over while she and her daughter started in earnest on the main meal which included food spontaneously donated by neighbors. I helped with chopping vegetables for a while, then went outdoors where a vast flat step stretched uninterrupted from my feet to those of mountains some fifty miles away. The sky was divided in half, crystal azure on top and smoky brown haze on the bottom. A small group of teenagers spotted me and gathered round, inviting me into a game of keeping a volleyball aloft. As we played in a circle rather than in teams, I sensed the physical strength these people must have, withstanding temperatures that can hit 50 below zero during a punishing eight-month winter. After volleyball I hung out with the van drivers for a while, they are hard-working, family-oriented men with wonderful senses of humor, like many I've encountered on the numerous trips to Russia I've taken since 1985. I have always felt strangely at home among them despite our differences in culture and education. But often when times get even tougher, they flirt with, and occasionally succumb to, alcoholism. How they deal with their difficulties will greatly impact the fate of Russia. The traditional teachings of shamanism are among the choices before them. Perhaps they will find a way to integrate the old and the new more successfully than other modern cultures have raising wind horse. I returned to the house at 10 p.m., where Harold's aunt had been working on our meal for a couple of hours. We had already eaten enormously on the trip and didn't need to be fed so generously, in fact a large meal was daunting. But the shamans insisted we fortify ourselves for an all-night ceremony just outside of town. Siberian shamans are firm believers in burning off calories through working for the earth. And so when the delicious meal arrived, we indulged until we were stuffed. 
The thought of another ceremony seemed almost ridiculous. Most of us were still adjusting to the 12-hour time difference and all were running on an average of four to six hours of sleep a night and near constant traveling. But remarkably, a new stream of energy swept over us as we piled into the vans. I should have been ready to keel over, but my sense of aliveness had never been greater. Apparently, we were cultivating the personal psychic power called Himari or Wind Horse by Siberian and Mongolian shamans. We started down yet another dusty and deserted, seemingly endless road, but soon stopped just outside of town. A howling wind hurled us as we emerged from the vans into the dim light of sunset. A few stars pierced a veil of smoke overhead, now joined by gusts of blowing sand from which we had no cover. We ventured out to a newly built ovu, where Harold devoted twenty minutes to getting a fire going. The same wind that kept putting out the matches became an ally when the first tiny flames took hold and were fanned into a roaring blaze like a blast furnace. Sand stunk our faces and billows of sparks took flight above us. Drums and rattles began as the women surrounded the ovu and the men circled the fire ten feet away. Together the wind, the sand, the smoke, the shamans in their costumes and the chanting created a primal symphony without a sense of time. It was getting colder and our movements were getting faster. We went on and on. Beloved images of my northeastern U.S. home flashed into my mind, opulent rivers, lush green trees and dancing fields, cascading waterfalls, the turbulent main coastline, so many images of water, as if to balance the dryness here. Animals and Native American ancestral spirits also appeared, and when a little chipmunk dashed through my awareness, a tear fell from my eye in gratitude for the love of earth that was exploding in me. I had energy to go hours more, but the ceremony soon came to an end as the shamans sensed that we had accomplished our mission and we endured a three-hour van ride back, arriving at our campground outside Marin at the crack of dawn. Having personal healings. With one day left, despite exhaustion, no one wanted to miss anything. Sleep seemed less important than the day's agenda, Siberian personal healings. Siberian shamanic healing can be described as it hurts so good, so my enthusiasm was mingled with some trepidation. Not everyone received a healing that day, as I did not, but I was honored to be present for the healing of another group member, I will call Jane. She and Natasha felt a calling to work together. Natasha had Jane lie down in one of the utes, on a floor of canvas over straw. I helped with translation as Natasha explained her perception that Jane had been chastised so much during her childhood, to the point of being afraid to express herself as an adult in certain ways. Natasha smudged Jane from head to toe and proceeded to perform a shamanic massage, crying out, growling, slowly and methodically working her thumbs into every part of Jane's body. Her growls sometimes lasted a minute between her own breaths and occasionally she slapped Jane on an arm or a section of her back. Periodically, Natasha collected the negative energy in her hands, clapped them together, and tossed it out the front door. Jane had been fairly quiet, but when Natasha started to work the joints in her toes, I saw tears form in Jane's eyes and a scream building in her throat. I let her know it was fine if she needed to let it out, instead she repeated, no, no. 
Seemingly at some inner demon, though the process looked so painful that I wondered if it was directed at Natasha's work. I resisted a strong impulse to intervene. Nearly two hours later, Natasha completed the healing session and told Jane that she might have died in a year if she had not come to Siberia. A great deal of bad energy was surrounding her that needed to be cast off. When Jane said, she felt much better, I breathed a sigh of relief. And the seven or eight others who chose healings also seemed happy with the results, despite enduring some degree of physical pain. Farewells and Thanksgiving In the morning we would be leaving this pristine campground, nestled so gently in the taiga, so our hosts from Marent threw a farewell party that was a festive cultural exchange in the middle of the Siberian wilderness. We traded songs, games, dances and laughter. Smoke hugged the horizon and the Asian River peacefully flowed towards Mongolia. A wave of pure contentment seemed to wash over us all. At five the next morning we packed up. Our farewell to the villagers included hugs all around. As we headed out I soon succumbed to a deep sleep to be awakened for a final roadside Ovu stopped to complete the circle of prayer and thanks in order for the road to remain the pen. We tied our last charmellas on the trees there then shared a quick meal. The cool air was invigorating but sleep soon overcame me again once we settled into the vans and continued on. Back at our hotel in Kizil, I showered gratefully and after lunch we piled into a sun-baked ute, where I Turek welcomed us back, treating us to a performance by the best throat singers any of us had ever witnessed. Feeling my energy once again flowing strongly, I stood up to thank the Tuvans individually, collectively, and as a nation. I told them how amazed I was that, despite being dominated by Manchuria and the Soviet Union for the last 200 years, Tuvans do not want to dominate anyone. They simply want to live and restore their culture. Their kindness, courage and generosity are an example for the whole world, and we Americans had a lot to learn from them. We would be bringing their gentle message back home with us. After dinner at the hotel, Ichurek invited us to a special ritual ceremony called a Mysteria, much like the ones we had been doing since the beginning of the trip, except that she now was leading it. The energy that flew out of her was astonishing. We all faced a spectacular view, with the mighty Nizi River faithfully flowing north, and the sun dropping toward the mountains off to our left. About two dozen Tuvans from Kizil had joined us, including one of the throat singers we had heard that afternoon. He sat next to me, drumming, and I became a little self-conscious about my rattling. I had two rattles in my hand, one a recent gift, which was covered with Siberian rock art symbols, the other brought from home and decorated with a Native American motif. Was I keeping time? How was the rhythm? After a few more minutes those thoughts floated away and I again entered a trance state. I felt the two rattles emanating two different kinds of energies. Both had their own sound, gift, and unique expression for the world. And I was not playing them, they were playing me. They were like the East and the West, working together, with their harmony like the bridges I had worked to build between two different cultures for the last fifteen years. A crescendo was building as Ichurek's movements became wilder and wilder. Above us, a huge eagle materialized, as wide as the Indizi. I perceived a ladder that we all began climbing to ride the eagle, 
who would fly or stall the earth-honoring communities already existing or sprouting up all over the world. I thought for an instant this is a little absurd, and yet the vision would not budge. I understood then that this was the bookend to the rainbow vision at the beginning of the trip. And so at that moment I just surrendered to the power of the universe and said, Take me, I'm yours. Ichurek's intensity eventually subsided and we gradually returned to ordinary consciousness. There were farewell hugs, phone numbers and addresses exchanged. A stripe of moonlight crossed over gentle ripples on the uneasy. I went down to the water to offer a pinch of tobacco as a small gesture of thanks and a prayer that the power of water balance the power of fire. That night in a vivid dream I was riding a horse across the steppe, blanketed with smoke. I felt a roar, penetrating, visceral power charging through me. At first I recognized it as I chew Rex power, but then it became my own. It came from this land, from that piece of earth known as Siberia, Mongolia, Tuva. It is indomitable. And then the gift of rain. Our humble group of earth lovers flew out of Kizil the next morning and spent a couple of days in Moscow, integrating back into the urban world, noting the stark contrast with the rural Tuvan lifestyle in which we had just been immersed. Finally we departed. Upon returning to our homes we received a series of emails from Tuva. The first was from Natasha, it's been raining for three straight days since you left. A week later Stefan wrote, Don't know if you've heard but it's rained for a whole week here. The fires are out. The last came a month later from Natasha, it's been raining almost every day for a month. This never happens in Tuva, especially never in the summer. Notes, 1. The taiga is a forest that exists as a nearly continuous belt of coniferous trees across North America and Northern Europe and Siberia. 2. Ovu or Obu or Ovar are sacred shrines. 3. Wind horse is the spiritual power of shamans. Sacred Hoop wishes to thank Clean Roberts and Dream Change for their considerable help with this article. Bill Pfeiffer is the founder and director of Sacred Earth Network, a maverick environmental organization doing their best to restore the hoop of all nations. He has undergone extensive training with Siberian shamans and also spent much time in the U.S. Southwest learning about native medicine ways and the crucial importance of the petroglyphs and pictographs. For more information visit www.dreamchange.org and www.sacredearthnetwork.org Well, thank you Lucy and um, I'm really curious to know what you thought about that. If you were to download an article from iTunes uh, so that you could listen to it like that on your iPod or your computer or your home stereo or whatever... Could you let me know? I'd really be grateful. Nick at sacredhoop.org And uh, thank you for listening, and I do hope you enjoyed it. Um, Nick at sacredhoop.org sacredhoop.org threeworlds.co.uk um, You know it all by now if you're a regular visitor to this particular little pod. So, all right, I'll leave you in peace. Thank you. Bye.